Good morning again. My message this morning is in uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 8. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans. One thing I love about being in Abu Dhabi is the opportunity that we have uh, to learn about so many different cultures that exist here and New Life Church uh, out in our communities. And we have the opportunity to travel to so many different cultures that are nearby here. And so I've learned to genuinely appreciate the differences that we have. And at the same time, though, I've also developed a deeper appreciation for some things in my own culture. I'm from the United States, if you didn't know. There's one thing uh, that Americans excel at. It is the celebration of freedom. It's every July the 4th. We call it Independence Day. It's just past. There's no better time of year. If you care to learn more about American culture, along with all the cultures that we have here, there's really no better time of year to be there to learn about what Americans are all about than in and around the 4th of July, celebrating freedom. A lot of songs have been written. Songs are songs during that time. Poems are written. Movies are produced. Uh, books are published. Uh, like tons and tons. Too many. It's a bit ridiculous, actually. I always regret, though, not being home uh, during this time of year. I haven't been able to be home for July the 4th for a couple, three years now. And even though throughout the world, there's a lot of division on a lot of different levels. Uh, And in America, it's also, whether you're talking about politically, religious, race, socioeconomic, there's just a lot of division. But on the 4th of July, Independence Day, it is really the most unifying time throughout the whole year. Even amidst all the division, still, the banner of freedom, everybody unites under it. Because that's what they're celebrating, is freedom. You would hope that it would be the banner of the cross, right? But it's just not true. That's just not what unites people, not in America, not anymore, even if it was uh, in times gone by, not now. That is one point of division, actually. It's a major point of division. But everyone is celebrating freedom. They're celebrating freedom from something different and to something different than their fellow countrymen. But they're still celebrating freedom, whatever their freedom is, whatever they feel oppressed by and feel free now to do. Some celebrate freedom of religion, and I think that is the founding uh, principle of America, freedom of religious expression, freedom to worship. Some, though, are celebrating uh, freedom from religion, but that is a religion by itself. Some, uh, the freedom to finally get married. Some, maybe freedom uh, from a particular marriage. Freedom from oppression of foreign countries or 
freedom from the oppression that they feel within their own country. But they're celebrating this freedom. Some remember the price that others paid for that freedom, and some are remembering the price that they paid themselves. Whether it's religion, gender, sexual orientation, race, whatever people feel restricted by an oppressor, they celebrate independence from that oppressor. And that unites the whole country, really. It's, it's like nothing I've ever seen anywhere I've ever been at every level. National, state, down into the counties, they all have their celebration. In the churches, in the local community, in the cul-de-sac, in your house, everybody dresses up for it. It's, something, it's a sight to see. You can probably guess that I'm planning to talk about freedom. But biblical, what is, what, how are we free? Because you're going to see as we talk about this today that the freedom that's being celebrated in America is not real freedom. The title of my sermon is actually Freedom is Not Free. And I intend a bit of a double meaning there. The surface meaning is a bit obvious. Freedom is not free because even if you didn't pay for it, somebody did. Somebody paid a price for you to express yourself in a free way. Because somebody wants to take it from you, and a price has to be paid. But freedom is also not free because we are not free to use our liberties in a way which contradicts true liberty because that in itself is a return to bondage. So we're not free to use freedom any way we feel like it. So freedom is not free. Not real freedom. Sounds like a paradox, and that's because it is. It's the fight that we are in with ourselves to be free. And we express ourselves in free ways that actually is a return to bondage. But we think it's freedom. It's the paradox of the human existence. The main idea that I'm trying to get across today is that we are free to do what is pleasing to God. That's what we're made to do. And in Christ, we are free to do that. No longer in bondage. In Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 1 through 8, I saw three ways. I broke it up into three different parts. Our freedom is expressed through, first of all, the proclamation of our freedom, verse 1 through 2. The price of our freedom, and that's verses 3 through 4. And then the product of our freedom, verse 5 through 8. But before we read the scripture and begin at the proclamation of our freedom, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege to look into your word. And what we desire today, Lord, is to know with clarity what you have instructed us to do, to be, and to know. And we ask, Lord, that that your Holy Spirit would be here and enlighten us. May the words that I speak 
be honoring to you, and, and Lord, be correct in alignment with your instructions, your principles that you have left for us miraculously through your word. Bless this time, Lord. Open our eyes and hearts and minds that we can be transformed to be more like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 and 2 is the proclamation of our freedom. Let's read those two verses. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is an amazing uh, summary, the beginning of chapter 8, that summarizes all that Paul has been saying in the first seven chapters of Romans. Therefore, actually, refers back to what he has been talking about for seven chapters. And he says a lot. There's a lot to know and study and understand about everything that he's saying there. And you could summarize it with uh, the scripture reading, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. That is the new covenant. And in a lot of ways, Paul is trying to explain to his fellow Israelites that this is the new covenant. This is the new way. It's not the law anymore. No condemnation in the first verse is also set against all that condemns us in the first seven chapters of Romans. In the original language, if you looked at it closely, he says there is now no condemnation. The emphasis is on the no. And what he is trying to set us against is all the, all the condemnation that exists in the first seven chapters. And I'm going to quickly go through that. The knowledge of God revealed through nature brings condemnation in chapter 1 so that the unrighteous are without excuse. Even those who have not experienced the revelation of God the way the Israelites have, they are still, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, without excuse, condemned. In chapter 2, Paul explains that the law condemns because, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, circumcision, which is the mark of the old covenant, becomes uncircumcision if you do not fulfill the requirements of the law. So if you cannot fully complete 100% the requirements of the law, he's talking to Jews here, his fellow Israelites, your circumcision actually condemns you because you didn't do it. And that's what Jeremiah 31 said again. You were unable to do it. You didn't fulfill the law. You broke the covenant. And Paul says in chapter 2 that you're condemned. The next chapter combines these two thoughts with the proclamation that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10. So he's combining the two. Everybody. We're all in the same boat. There's nothing that you can count on based on what you think is going to remove this condemnation. Chapter 4 demonstrates that Abraham's bloodline does not remove condemnation because he explains in great detail 
that even Abraham was justified by faith. So there was no special thing about Abraham's bloodline. And the Israelites counted on that somewhat to a significant degree. We are Abraham's children. But Paul said, you're still condemned. Abraham was justified by faith. And he's about to explain in great detail what that faith was in. Not in Abraham, but in the same thing that Abraham had faith in. We learn also that we have been condemned since Adam in chapter 12. Since sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. That's chapter 5 and verse 12. So Paul is explaining here that we, have, we are condemned from Adam because Adam originally fell. That is the fall of mankind. And really, the, the whole theology of our fall is based somewhat on chapter 5, Paul's theology of the fall. We are all in the same boat. And he keeps reiterating it over and over and over again. What he's trying to say, and he comes from every angle, is that we are condemned. And he's coming to a climax, though. He wants to uh, really drive home the point. Chapter 6 contrasts the slave of God. It's interesting that he used those words. The slave, you can become a slave of God as opposed to the slave of sin. And he informs us that the wages of sin is death, condemned. That's the price that we have to pay for our sin. And that is an eternal separation. That is a spiritual death. And then Paul expounds on the law of sin, which leaves him in chapter 7. He's in misery. He's broken. He's shattered. He's defeated. And he's begging for an answer at the end of chapter 7. If you read through chapter 7, you see this. He, he is in such a struggle within himself. What I want to do, I can't do it. What I don't want to do, I do it. And it leaves him in misery. And he's begging for a question to this, uh, an answer to a very haunting question. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. And that's chapter 7 verse 24. Leading right up to. Where we are. In chapter 8. It's not a rhetorical question. Praise God for that. This is not just a question to be. For us to just ponder on our own. Because Paul gives us the answer to that question. Immediately following that in chapter 7. But also here in chapter 8. No condemnation. There is therefore, in light of all of that, now no condemnation, but it's for a special group of people. A very significant and special group of people. And it's those people who are in Christ. There's only one way to escape condemnation, and that's to be in Christ. And this is Paul's terminology. This is how he describes the experience of becoming properly related, reconciled back to God. Because that has been the objective of God since the fall of Adam. 
our reconciliation. And Paul uses this terminology, in Christ. Is this the only way? You and I are condemned unless we are in Christ. There is only good news for people who are in Christ. Otherwise, it's very bad news. It's a lot of bad news. All others remain condemned. So how do we know for sure that we're in Christ? You would think that among Christians, there would be unity about the answer. (laughs) But there's not. It's amazing to me how much there's not. There are varying opinions, even within the very theologically distinctive group of Christians known as evangelicals. We're under that umbrella here at New Life Church. We're evangelicals, if you didn't know that. It's just a theological term that kind of separates people. I'm studying right now the Reformation. Uh, 16th and 17th century uh, church history. It's an amazing time. Unfortunately, somehow, the church got so far off track that some felt that it must be reformed. The Roman, the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church that began with Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, he kind of combined politics and religion so that you were ruling with religion, and it just got sideways. And so Martin Luther and others in the Protestant movement said, you know, this has got to stop. And so that's that's how the Reformation started. Now, you would think that these folks would all be on one page because these folks who were trying to reform the church, they have a lot of reason to be united against what the church had become. But sadly, that's not even true. It was a lot of division. There was a lot of terrible things going on. Not only between the Roman Catholic Church and those who were protesting, the Protestants, but also within the Roman Catholic Church and within and among all the Protestants. Now, not, they weren't doing like we do today. We, we assassinate character. They were just killing each other over silly things like this that I'm talking about. Now, a case in point was the Synod of Dort. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. It's in 1618, early 17th century, during the Reformation. There was a dispute over precisely how a person is assimilated into the category of being in Christ. Everyone at the Synod of Dort, though, shockingly, they agreed 100% that humanity does not deserve God's mercy and grace. But it is made available because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, and we can live forever because Christ conquered death in the resurrection. Now, isn't that enough to unite us? They all agreed on this. But what they didn't agree on, what they differed on, was only in how God administers grace. Now, when we start getting in God's wheelhouse, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. 
God is God. We don't dictate to God how he does the things that he does. We can speculate. We can talk about it. We can have theological discussions about it. But look, if we're going to argue to a point of killing each other about how God administers grace, and the question was this, was it grace for all humanity and individuals must yield their will or only the elect have this special grace administered to them that is irresistible. This is what they were arguing about. People argue about it today. They're still arguing. We just don't kill each other over it, I hope. There's plenty of scripture if you want to go one way or the other to support your position. Like I said, because people are still arguing about it today. How does God administer his grace? Those on the wrong side of the issue, according to the Synod of Dort, were excommunicated, deposed from the ministry, imprisoned, and or executed. Because they thought that God's grace was administered one way, and the Synod of Dort, the people who won the day, thought it was administered another way. Now, I'm not going to choose sides in the pulpit here today on the issue, but I'll offer uh, my advice. I'm talking about how you can know that you are in Christ. And it has nothing to do with knowing theologically correctly how God administers grace. (laughs) My advice is that it doesn't matter whether God's grace is irresistible or prevenient because he's the one that deals it out to people who don't deserve it. God is God. We don't dictate to God how he does it. He does it amazingly because he loves us. Our responsibility is the same either way. Neither John Calvin nor Jacobus Arminius, who are the fathers of these two lines of thought, will stand with you on the judgment day. Only Christ is your effectual advocate and God is the judge. So what do I say? Go to God. We must go to God. We can't go to our parents Finally, now our parents, we need counsel from our parents, from our pastor. But finally, they cannot solve the issue for us. Not the synod of Dort, no formulaic prayer will save you. No bloodline, not Abraham's bloodline. No system of belief, and that's what Paul was saying. None of this stuff will save you. God will save you. Only God can save you. So we must go to God. And until we make that personal connection, we must run to God. Now, I tried my best to bridge the gap for my children, but I can't save them. They must go to God. And God is the one who will judge you. And I don't think he's going to ask you, did you believe in prevenient or irresistible grace? That will not be a question on judgment day. I want to read a passage in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 28. And this is what I'm trying to get at. We must go to God for the assurance that we are in Christ. How do we know for sure that we are in Christ? We're in this category of people who are no longer condemned. Because that's the point, right? 
We need to make sure that we are in that category of persons, not condemned. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 28, read with me there. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She needs to be freed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. What his, I'm going to pause there for just a second. Jesus, I think, didn't say a word because he's setting up this drama. <laughs> he, he's trying to get across a point to his disciples. His disciples said, Send her away. She's not chosen. She's not one of us. She's not elected. He answered exactly what they were saying. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's bad news for me. (laughs) That's really bad news for me. I mean, I'm glad the story doesn't end there because I'm on the outside of that issue. I'm not in that circle. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. She said, now now notice what she said. She didn't claim Abraham's bloodline. She didn't claim any heritage from her family, her mom, her parents. She didn't claim any of her own works. She knew she was condemned. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Is it offensive for you to think of yourself as a dog begging for crumbs from the king's table? Does that sound repulsive or offensive to you? If so, then you're in trouble because the gospel is offensive to you. This is a picture of where we are. We are condemned. And my point is, for you to get the assurance of being in Christ, you must go to God and beg him for mercy and God will have mercy it's as simple as that in the name of Jesus God will have mercy on you that's how you know you're in Christ when I have doubts because I have doubts from the time I first turned to God away from my sin because the Holy Spirit calling me from the very first time I've had doubts throughout my life what do I do? I run to God and I beg him for mercy. I pray the same prayer I've always prayed. God, have mercy on me. I don't deserve it, but I need it. I need your mercy. This is how you know you're in Christ. You go to God, 
in the disposition of I am undeserving. I'm the dog begging for crumbs from your table. Have mercy. Help me. And you will, God will have mercy. That's how we know we're in Christ. Romans 11, 33, 34. If you really want to know how I boil down all these theologically nuanced positions, how do I get it sorted out in my head? What should I believe about this or that or the other when it's not one of these cardinal truths about Christ's sacrificial death and his resurrection? What does, what does God's word say? Well, Paul later in Romans says, oh, while he's talking about all these different nuanced positions, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor. That's my point. God is God, not me. I can't put God in any box. At the end of the day, I'm not sure exactly why God does everything he does because as Paul says here, this word inscrutable means unknowable. impossible to interpret. We can't know 100%, right? Corinthians, he also says that we see through the glass darkly. Not everything is 100% knowable about God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And that's why I say, if you have doubts, if you have questions, don't worry about these deep theological questions. Just run to God and beg for mercy, and God will have mercy. And that's how you know you're in Christ. Those are the people who are in Christ, the ones who go to Him and beg for mercy. Chapter, um, I'm sorry, verse 2 uh, of Romans uh, chapter 8 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. All throughout uh, those seven chapters previously, Paul has been setting up uh, these different principles. This law that he's talking about here is not the Mosaic law, although he does reference that quite a bit throughout. This is not Mosaic law. What he's talking about here is the principles of the law of the Spirit of Christ and sin and death. Those who are in Christ, the law of the Spirit of Christ has set you free. But free to do what? What? are those who are in Christ free to do? As he says, we've been set free. So obviously, we were not free to do something before we were made free in Christ. He set us free. We were in bondage, and we're going to look at exactly what we are set free to do here in just a a minute. But first, uh, let's look at the price of our freedom. Verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This righteous requirement of the law, it keeps coming up, right? The requirement of the law. The ability to fulfill the requirement of the law. How do we fulfill the requirement of the law? How is it done? 
it's important that we remember a couple of things about this passage, these two verses, what God has done, number one. God has done it. He has accomplished. He has fulfilled the, re- the righteous requirements of the law in us who are in Christ. God did what we could not do. We could not fulfill, as Jeremiah said. They could not fill the requirements of the old covenant. So he made a new covenant. Those who are in Christ are accomplished or within the new covenant. And the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. We can't get this backwards and think that what we do is fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law because it's simply not true. And some people read it this way, that we have the power now to do the things that are needed to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And that's not what it says. Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. And those of us who are in Christ, we go to God and beg for mercy in the name of Jesus. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled now in you. The work that we do, we, are, we have power to work. Yes, in, in the Spirit, we have power to do things. We're set free to do things. But that doesn't fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We are set free to do some things. Yes, we can't get this wrong. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean Christ was sinful. But Christ did become, take on a human nature. Christ became what we are, our human nature, so that we can become what he is. It's interesting to think about the fact that Christ's sinless humanity was the condition of humanity in the beginning before the fall, mentioned in chapter 5. That's what God intended for us, and that's what he is restoring us back to. But fulfilled in who? Again, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, are the same ones who are in Christ, and the walk, is what we have been freed to do. If we reverse the meaning, we would would be thinking that we are fulfilling the righteous requirement of of the law by walking according to the Spirit. And that's not true because we still sin, right? Is Christ going to die again? Because we're still sinning. So don't, don't reverse that. Being in Christ sets us free for that walk. Freedom is not free. Christ paid for our freedom. And now in in verses 5 through 8, let's look quickly at the product of our freedom. Starting at verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why can't they? Because they're not free to do so. They have not been freed to do so. Christ sets us free so that we can please God. And only by being in Christ can we accomplish that. 
set their minds. Also, it would be incorrect to read this as your will setting your mind on these spiritual things so that we accomplish the righteous requirements of the law. That's not what it means. We are free to have our minds set on these spiritual things because Christ has set us free. And free to do what? Now let's talk about a few things, okay, that we could put in this category. And Paul elaborates on this extensively later. But what's important for us to really drive home today is what it takes for us to be in Christ and then what we are free to do because we are in Christ, because we can take on the guilt again. And we can take on the burden of living the Christian life as if it's burdensome. We can re-put that load back on our shoulders if we're not careful. Because that's just human nature. We think that we must. But Christ has set us free. Those who are in Christ, you are free now to love your neighbor, even if they are not lovable. If you're not in Christ, you're not free to do it. But we've been liberated from the bondage of selfishness. Those things that we thought we were exercising our freedom in was actually our slavery. Christ has freed us from that. We're free to be kind to someone who's unkind to you. You're free from this battle that we have going on within our communities. You don't have to engage in it. Christ has set us free to give when no one congratulates you or even notices that you give anything. You're free from the competition. We're free to serve even when others demand to be served. That's what Christ sets us free to do. The freedom that we have is to be what God made us to be. That doesn't fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, though. We're free from competition over having the best vacation, the nicest house, or the most beautiful clothes. We're free from obsessing over the wood, hay, and stubble of this world. We do not have to desire it. We're free from it. That's what Christ sets us free for. We're free from the misery of trying to measure up, the burden of trying to be good enough, the rat race of trying to get more. We're free. We don't have to engage in that any longer. We don't have to be faster. We don't have to be stronger. We don't have to be better. Christ has fulfilled in us the righteous requirement of the law, and now we are free to be what God made us to be. We are free to honor God, the one who made us. We're free from the bondage of self-seeking. In verse 8, those in the flesh cannot please God. Why can they not please God? They're enslaved by the corrupted human nature. But in Christ, we are free to please him. We are free to be what he made us to be, not do what we want. That's a return to the bondage. Because we're still in this battle. The process of sanctification, I sometimes describe it this way. We are two beings now. The new 
creature and the old. And we're trying to make the new creature stronger than the old one by continuing to surrender. But that doesn't accomplish the righteous requirements of the law. That has been done already. We are free. The Spirit of God frees us to win that battle and to be sanctified, the process of sanctification. Which monster is winning inside of you? Okay, Those who are not in Christ, there is no battle. They're not free at all. They're in bondage to their human nature. I read this quote on, uh, on Laura. Is Laura here today? She's not here today. Uh, on her page uh, back on July the 4th. Uh, from Peter Marshall. He's an American pastor in Washington, D.C. And he said this, May we think of freedom not as the right to do as we please, but as the opportunity to do what is right. And that's what really Christ frees us, to do what is right, to do what is righteous, and to, to be what God made us to be. But not only is it the opportunity to do what is right, it is the power. Christ gives us the power to be and walk in that spiritual life. We're free, but it's not easy. And that, that, the, the difficulty is still the process of sanctification uh, indicated by Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, there's the slavery to God again, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it ends in eternal life. In conclusion, I want to uh, tell you a quick story about a young man named Chris uh, McCandless. Uh, in 1990, uh, he was a recent college graduate. Some of you might, might be familiar with this story. But Chris McCandless was from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that's where my home is now, near there. And in 1990, recently graduated from college, he headed west uh, on a journey of self-discovery. And his car broke down, and he ceremoniously burned the rest of his possessions buried the rest of what he had except for the clothes on his back and he burned the money that he had and he declared his independence from this world and he began a journey of self-discovery his, uh, his journey took him to a lot of places but he still wanted to get his independence from the world system and so he made his way to the last frontier, Alaska. And when he got to Alaska, he scrawled this uh, manifesto on a piece of plywood and a bus that he had found to make his home there in Alaska. And he said this, talking about himself, two years he walks the earth, no phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes, ultimate freedom, an extremist. An aesthetic voyager whose home is the road. Escaped from Atlanta, thou shalt not return because the West is the best. And now, after two rambling years, comes the final and greatest adventure. The climactic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual pilgrimage. Ten days and nights of freight trains and hitchhiking bring him to the great white north. He's talking about himself again. No longer to be poisoned by the civilization he flees and walks alone upon the land to become lost 
in the wild. He named himself throughout this journey the Super Tramp. And a lot of people followed him. It was like a story. People were like, oh, the Super Tramp. You know, where is he now? What's he doing now? How, how is his life going? You know, he's, he's disconnected. He's off the grid. He's living free. And many of us, we attempt things to express our freedom in different ways, kind of like the super tramp, maybe not necessarily to this extreme. But it didn't end well for him. He got sick because he ate some poison berries. And in desperation, he wrote another plea. SOS, I need your help. He's talking to anyone now. This is not his manifesto. Anyone who might read it. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I'm out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you. Chris McCandless. August. He just put August just to designate when he wrote it. Some hunters found his body about three weeks later. Uh, he didn't make it. My point is this. Many of the things that we think we are fleeing from the poison of the world, we're just trading one poison for another, just like the super tramp did. And eventually that leads to death. That's what Paul said. Paul said that these things that you think are your freedom, it is your bondage. We're trading one slavery for another. Are we truly exercising our freedom in Christ to be what he has empowered us to be, what he intended us to be, what he created us to be? And the Spirit of God in us is accomplishing that. We have to allow it, though. We have to surrender to him. We have to continue to go back to God and beg him for the mercy that we need. Let's not mistake the freedom that is being celebrated in America and across the world as real freedom. The only real freedom that we can experience is the freedom that we have in Christ to be what God made us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, enlighten us and continue to show mercy and grace in our lives so that we can transform and be everything that you have always intended us to be, that we would honor you with our lives, that we would bring glory to you, that we would know you more and be able to make you known. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.